everybody. Good to see you guys. Y'all look so sharp in your purple light out there. We're all lit in purple today. Today we have some guests, some H2O University of Cincinnati people. So yeah, like right over here in this area. Great to have them. They are considering um, planting uh, a new college church, and they're looking at a bunch of different locations, and one of those locations happens to be like Orlando and UCF. So we're going to try to wine and dine them and get them to convince them that this is where God's leading them. So it's good to have you guys here this morning. Um, man, there's a lot of people out of town. I've noticed that like this next, like this three to week to month period, there's, eh, man, so many people are going on vacations and that kind of thing. And so we really appreciate you guys serving and helping out with so many of the needs that are kind of just open right now. And so um, it's really cool, though, that people are traveling and getting to see family and doing those kind of things. So this morning we are concluding our series titled Unashamed. And we're going to finish the same way that we've started every Sunday in this series. So this is our, our seventh week, and we've started off in John chapter 20, and I've mentioned a verse, even as the Father has sent me, and this is Jesus speaking, so I am sending you. And that message is for each one of us. Now, some of us, unfortunately, have been in a hospital room with a loved one, and you've heard some of their last words. And those times are of profound importance. If you've been in that room, every single word matters. And Jesus' last words are so famous and were so important that literally like tons of churches and ministries have been named for kind of his last words, and they're called the Great Commission, the Great Co-Mission. And so I'm just going to read this from Matthew 28. A lot of us know this section, but these were Jesus' last words. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If we say we love Jesus and we say we follow Jesus, but we aren't engaged in what he sent us out to do, then we're really involved with something that we've kind of constructed ourselves. It's not his mission, it's our mission. And we want to be about his mission. I know a lot of you here in the room, I know that our desire is to follow him. Like when he said to his disciples, hey, I'm Jesus, come and follow me. Like that real simple statement, like there are so many of us in this room that have said, I want to do that. And so we know that that's, our desire. I love that Jesus, it wasn't just, I mean, it was follow me, but it was, I'm going to show you a whole entire new way 
of living. And it's going to take you a few years to pick up on all of it, but I'm going to show you what you were made for, what you were designed for, what you were created for, and that's this great commission. And this is why he's called us to be unashamed. As we mentioned last week, we are unashamed. Those of us that know Jesus, like literally and spiritually, our shame and guilt has been nailed to the cross. We're clean in His eyes because of what Jesus has done for us. Scripture says that God actually chooses to forget our sin because of what Jesus did. And so sometimes, you know, if you picture it this way where we get, um, we feel shame or whatever and we apologize, God, I am so sorry that I did that again, that according to Scripture, like his response could be, what are you talking about? I have forgotten that already. That is amazing. It's an incredible message, and Scripture was crystal clear. Do not keep this to yourself. Go to the ends of the earth, and this is to be your message. Forgiveness is found in me. You can be restored, made new. You can dwell with God forever. You got it? Now let's go. That was his mission. So that first group of men and women who followed Jesus took him at his word seriously. And they spread the message. They did all kinds of crazy things. They took risks. Their lives were on the line. They moved to different cities. They sold their property. They prayed for one another. They loved each other. They took care of one another. This evangelizing the world drove them and motivated them, knowing that they had been forgiven. They lived in a dangerous world, and we've got a lot to learn from those first Jesus followers. And I would say today, at least in America, is, is somewhat um, dangerous. I don't know. I know that in other countries, it is dangerous for a believer to go public that they're following Jesus. Like, there is a price to pay for that. It could mean persecution or jail, being disowned by your family, losing your job, whatever. There is persecution in other countries. It is a really high price. But the price that we pay in our culture is something a little bit different. I think it's more about our reputation and how we're received by others. Over the last, I would say, 30 years or so, there's something that's sort of accompanied this cultural shift from a Christian nation to what most sociologists would say we are a post-Christian culture, is that when the perceived oppressors, and that is Christians, that held power are toppled, they will be forced to do penance and pay for their sins, okay? And so our media and the educational system in a lot of ways um, have sent a strong message. And many of you 
many of you have heard this if you're following Jesus, and that is you have been accused of being a bigot, narrow-minded, intolerant, and immoral. That is communicated often. A big word that I see online constantly, and I see this like it is making a comeback, and that is shame. Shame on you for believing that or for saying that or for even thinking that you have the right way. You must pay a price for thinking that. And sadly, because of that kind of thought, it has put a lot of us in the closet as Christians. We are scared to be labeled as one of them. None of us. Who wants to be labeled as a bigot or narrow-minded or intolerant or immoral? Nobody. But when that just kind of gets communicated over and over, eventually it's like, ah, I don't know if I feel really good about maybe being honest that I am a a Jesus follower. And so I think that cultural shift has made us very Peter-like. And I'm talking about Peter from Scripture. So Luke 22 is this really interesting section where Jesus has been taken away and he has been seized and Peter is at a distance in Luke 22 and observing what is happening with Jesus. It says this, Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. He's probably kind of got his, his hoodie over his head a little bit. It says, A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looks closely at him and says, wait a minute, this man right here, he was with him. And that's what would happen sometimes. The followers of Jesus would get accused like they were with him. This is one of them. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, hey, wait, you also, you're one of them. Man, I am not. The best Bible translations say that he swore at this point, cussed, like, no, I swear I am not. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Really intense scene. Because he had told him earlier this would happen. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. That question, well, wait, are you, are you one of them? Me? I, no, I'm not one of those. And yet we look at a scene like this and we think of all that Jesus has done for Peter and even what he was going to do for him in just hours. And that's a painful scene for us to watch. And yet all of us 
have had our Peter moments, haven't we? Where we don't want to identify with Jesus or be associated with Him. That's just difficult. So let's look at some of the things, and this is just crazy, some of the insane things that were being said about the Christians in that first century. So these are some of the things that the early believers and the Apostle Paul had to deal with. So this guy, Marcus Cornelius Fronto, who was a Roman orator, he was living um, from 100 AD to 166, and he's an antagonist of Christianity. He wrote this about the Christians. They have collected from the lowest possible dregs of society, the more ignorant fools together with gullible women, readily persuaded, as is their weak sex. That's how they viewed the other gender. They have thus formed a rabble of blasphemous conspirators who with nocturnal assemblies, periodic fasts, and inhuman feasts seal their pact, not with some religious ritual, but with desecrating profanation. They recognize each other by secret marks and signs. Hardly have they met when they love each other. On a special day, they gather for a feast with all their children, sisters, mothers, all sexes, and all ages. They didn't do that. That religious culture out there, there was this separation. The Christians, everybody is invited. So they obviously thought there is something wrong with this. They're flush with a banquet after such feasting. They begin to burn with incestuous passions. The light is overturned and extinguished, and with it common knowledge of their actions. In the shameless dark, with unspeakable lust, they copulate in random unions, all equally being guilty of incest, some by deed, but everyone by complicity. Had Fronto ever been to one of their meetings? No. And yet he spreads this all over. And so when the Jesus followers went to a new town, this is the type of garbage they would have to power through when they were telling people about Jesus. They were already offensive to people because of these rumors. And it's not a lot different today sometimes. Here's another beauty from Fronto, and he's describing a woman uh, who is a Christian, and the dude is obviously an insecure misogynist, okay, that I guarantee my wife could drop with one punch, all right? If you know her, she would do it. Here's what he says about this one Christian woman. She rejects, she rejects all true religion for a fantastic and blasphemous single God, single God, in whose honor she drank in mourning and hoard from all hours. Those are flat-out lies. Honestly, like those of us who've spent some time in the Internet, ugh, um, I see depictions of Christians online all the time that i got to be honest, I've been involved in churches for 30 years, for decades. I've been to all kinds of conferences and talked to leadership and been in leadership meetings and everything, and I have never heard or seen the things that I see mentioned online, okay? I'm not saying they didn't happen, but I have never seen them. I've had my non-Christian friends say, well, you Christians believe this, and I'm like, that could not be farther off. Where did you get that? 
And so this is a really common tactic for those that want to discredit others. And we see this in all different phases of life, is that we create straw man arguments. In other words, online or just in general, you'll hear, well, Christians do or say or believe this. And it's usually something that's really outlandish, and so it's very easy to tear down and discredit. And then it gets retweeted and repeated over and over and over. And it eventually shapes the cultural understanding of what and who culture says that we are. If you say a lie long enough and loud enough, eventually people will believe it. And so part of that is simply the end goal of silencing Christians to scare us into the closet so nobody would, in their right mind would listen to us. Here is our strategy. This is precisely what we've been talking about and the reason why Jesus called us to associate with those outside the faith and to demonstrate what it means to follow Him. Because, in part, it dispels rumors. It helps people to see what Jesus is really about. You can't attack somebody when they were there for you, when they loved you, when they were attentive to you and your needs, lived a godly life in your presence, and when they shared Jesus with you with gentleness and respect. The answer for us with as Christians, is not to ever yell and scream back and defend ourselves and say, no, we're not like that. It's simply allowing our lives to very loudly communicate what we're really like. Some Christians might, or some non-Christians might fear you a little bit if you say you follow Jesus. But if they spent time with you, they would trust you because you can't hide character. My wife worked in a department on campus, in the music department, when we lived in Bowling Green. And after a while, most every other woman in that office that were going through things that were difficult had opened up to her and confided in her. Why? Because they were with her a lot and spent time with her and they knew they could trust her. There was character that was kind of spilled out with her life. And I am convinced that those who don't know Jesus, when they spend time with you guys, will be attracted to who God is. Not because you guys are a bunch of perfect people, but because you're real and you're authentic. And you don't hide what's really going on. And that means everything to people. That's what they want. They don't want some answer person that's going to tell them all these things that they're believing that is incorrect. They want someone who's real and authentic and then talks about, this is how Jesus has worked in my life. That is what people want. I've had people you know, that 
I've hung out with automatically assume that because I'm a pastor, this is the way I am. And then as we hang out, I'll hear this thing, hey, you're not at all like I thought you would be. And I'm always like, what would that be? And then they describe it. And <laughs> I'm always like, wow, it's crazy. It just comes with the, I mean, on top of that, it's even worse. You know, it's like one, you're a Jesus follower, and then you're a pastor. Like that is the, that could be the most boring person in the world right there, okay? So when Jesus was here, the more that people got to know him, the more they were attracted to him and realized, wow, he's different. I mean, there were other upstart preachers that came back in his time, and they talked a great game, but nobody said and did what he did. Nicodemus, that really religious man that was called Israel's teacher, comes to Jesus at night, and he says, we know that you're from God. You're different. Nobody else has spoken with the authority that you have and lived the way you have is what he's saying to. Nobody else has done that. You are from God. He backed it up. So our proximity with others outside of this church and our holy huddle is so important. I love I am proud as a Jesus follower that the God that we serve was accused, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, was accused of being the friend of sinners and drunkards and prostitutes. That is the God that we serve, that hangs out with people like us. 2 Timothy 1 we're going to look at that. We have Paul now who is in prison, and Paul was arrested for leading a religio illicita, is what they called it, an illegal religion in the eyes of Rome. So Paul's in prison. He's waiting for a trial and ultimately his execution. In the meantime, there's all these wild accusations against the Christians, against him. Some of the Christ followers in Asia have actually kind of backed away a little bit from Paul because they've heard all these slanderous reports about him. And so even they're starting to hear some of this and they're like, I don't know about this guy. And there's all these wild rumors going on. So here's his letter from prison. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Demetrius. Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day. I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. So those women right there were the legacy of faith that happened, made this happen right here. And Paul knows that those women were like, they're superstars. And we are persuaded that you've also got that kind of faith that your mother and your grandmother had. 
For this reason, I remind you to flame, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I want to skip down to verse 12. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Verse 15, skip down there. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including um, Phagellus and Hermogenes, two more some probably prominent leaders, they had kind of deserted Paul. He says, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. So Paul is dealing with all of these innuendo and rumors, and some people are buying it. Here's a few more quotes that are just, you know, the, the word of the day from the Christians. Because we don't make any distinctions in rank and outward appearance or wealth and education or age and sex, they devise an accusation against us that we practice cannibalism and sexual perversions. That's from a believer named Tatian. Because we don't make any distinctions in rank and outward appearance, or wealth and education. They didn't value some other people higher than others because they're rich or because they're educated or because they're a male or female. You see, the believers were living a very different life than the culture around them. Here is from Suetonius, a Roman historian. The Christians are an uncouth, uncomfortable set of killjoys hating the normal pleasures of life and denying the people's gods. They are a class of persons given to a new and mischievous superstition. Listen to this. This is from a lawyer. Um, his name was Messinius Felix, who converted to Christianity. And he's talking about early on, as an attorney, he was a public defender. And early on, these are the types of people that he would defend. However, they would not defend the Christians. He says they're not even worthy of defense. And he's saying, we too were the same as you. We were blind and callous, sharing your ideas. So he was sharing all these crazy ideas about the Christians in supposing that the Christians worshipped monsters, devoured children, and joined in lascivious feasts. At that time, we undertook the legal defense and protection of individual cases of sacrilege or incest or even parasite, which is killing their parents. So people that were accused of incest or had murdered their parents, we defended them. But regarding them, the Christians, as not entitled even to a hearing. Yes, sometimes the struggle with our own pity made us torture those who confessed with all the more savage cruelty. So they're torturing Christians. And finally, from Celsus, listen to this. I love how this one starts. Like all quacks, they gather a crowd of slaves, children, women, and idlers. 
I speak bitterly about this because I feel bitterly. When we're invited to the mysteries, the mystery religions of the day, the masters use another tone. They say, come to us, you who are of clean hands and pure speech, you who are unstained by crime, who have a good conscience towards God and who have done justly and live uprightly. But the Christians say, come to us, you who are sinners, you who are fools or children, you who are miserable, and you shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. The rogue, the thief, the burglar, the poisoner, the despoiler of temples and tombs, these are their proselytes. I love that quote. You guys are a bunch of rogues, thieves, drunks, and evildoers. All of y'all. And me too. And that is the good news, that we have been forgiven. That's the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of that message. He was willing to endure anything because he knew that he deserved death. And yet God gives him forgiveness and life. Everybody, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Our shame has been removed. We have a powerful message that the world needs to hear that is right now crippled with guilt and shame themselves. That there is a God who died for that. That regardless of anything they've done, Jesus offers them eternity. It is great news and it is not to be kept to ourselves. Remember Peter's betrayal and denial that we were talking about earlier. Well, I love the heart of God towards that man who swore that he wasn't one of the Jesus followers. Jesus said something really powerful to him in Luke 22 later on. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And here it is. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There it is. When you've turned back to me, you're going to repent. I knew this was going to happen. I told you this was going to happen. In fact, I knew you before I got you which is exactly the case with us. He knew us before He got us. He knew what He got when He got you. No surprise. And yet, He called Peter the rock. What an amazing God we have. Paul knows He chose me this great sinner to display His unlimited patience for all of us. So last, we've been entrusted with this great commission. That's why it's great. We have this great God who is perfect and yet has unlimited patience towards us and paid the ultimate price for us. 
That is nothing to be ashamed of. That is to be shouted from the rooftops, and we need to take it to every corner of the globe. I have a good friend that um, I heard him sing this song one night about Peter, and it was about this interaction with Jesus and him denying Jesus, and it struck me to the core because I think it spoke to my own life. And so this is my best friend. I hope you enjoy him. Um, he's just a great friend. He's one of those people. It's like just like water for my soul when I just see him and I'm with him. But he's a really talented guy, a musician. And every time we get together, I'm like, Aaron, can you play Simon Peter for me? Can you play that song? He's always like, oh, okay. So I asked him, I said, hey, we're doing this series, Unashamed. Can you, can you do this for the church? Come on, man, for me. And he's like, yeah, sure. So last night, he did this song for all you guys and for me, I guess. So here it is. Is it ready? Hey, what's up, all you crazy H2O Orlando people? This is for Jim. He asked me to do this. I literally just came in from mowing the lawn, so pardon the sweat, but it's Jim, so you know, you don't say no to Jim Foreman. guess I knew him the best I had more time to be with him much more than all the rest I even tried to walk on water and then I started down till he said oh you little faith why did you die name is Simon Peter, a name I tried to hide. I just denied my closest friend, and now he's crucified. My name is Simon Peter, and I'll shout into the sky. And I'll regret the words I said until day I die. He walked along so gently with great peace in his eyes. And when he asked me to follow him, my heart could not deny. His words fill my life with joy. I know he's the son of man. When it came time to stand and fight, I turned around and ran. My name is Simon Peter, a name I tried to hide. I just denied my closest friend, and now he's crucified. My name is Simon Peter, and I'll shout it to. I'll regret the 
as I said until the day I die. Darkness turns to dawn again. I hear people in the street, someone shouts, the tomb is empty, could it be the king still lives, is it possible that he came back and rose from the dead, I'll arise on the third day, I remember what he Shout it to the sky, and I'll teach the word of the living God until the day I die. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that your message is to all of us, to our friends, our family, people that don't know you right now, like this is the hope of the world, that they can know you, that they can be in relationship with you, that their identity can be changed, all that they struggle with, that God, you have answers, and God, you have asked us to partner with you and be co-partners like in this mission to reach others. God, I ask that we would be faithful followers of you, that we wouldn't just take 30% that are convenient for us, but we would take all of it and say, I will be that Peter that will preach this till the day I die. God, you know we're going to have our Peter moments, and yet you were faithful to Peter, and you knew that he would turn back. God, we're going to turn back. We're so thankful for your character that you're a patient God, that you provided for us the penalty for our sin. You paid it for us. And so, God, we do not ever want to be ashamed of that truth. Help us to boldly share that with others, but to do it, as you said, with gentleness and with respect. Make us those kinds of Jesus followers. In Jesus' name, amen.